Well, little Johnny went to his Sunday school classroom, and when he went there, he learned about that God created the heavens and the earth, and he was just, he was in wonder uh, hearing about God, and as they unfolded the creation story, it said that he created man, and then what really got him is when he said, then he created woman by taking a rib out of the, of the man and created woman, and and that just baffled him all week as he just thought about this and just tried to understand how could this possibly unfold. And his mom walked by his room later that week and saw him laying on his bed and like he was sick. And he was laying on his bed kind of holding his side. And Johnny, what's wrong? He said, oh, I'm not feeling very good. I think I'm about to have a wife. <laughs> that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about this morning. It just was funny. <laughs> no, it, it does in some way. I think often uh, we talk about faith and have an idea about faith, and we have a feeling about faith, but it's not very connected and grounded in what truth is around faith. And like little Johnny, I think sometimes we can mistake feelings that we have about faith and what we've kind of grown up with. Each of you have grown up with a faith story. Whether you have faith or not, you just grew up with a story about what you think and who you think God is um, and how you believe and were told uh, certain things that shaped your behavior around how you pursue your faith. It is really the big reason why we're doing this series. Remember what I told you, there's three factors to help us decide series. What's going on in the world? What's happening in our church body and our culture here? But I want you to know, one of the big factors is this, what's going on in me? And there's often times where I just need a refresher or a recalibrating or a, a renewed picture again of faith. And I've been a Christian for a long time, teaching for a long time. I have loved this refreshing course for me to relook at my faith. We really, as we dived, dove into this series, we have three objectives that we were trying to accomplish. One, that you'd peel back the layer of your own faith and evaluate your own faith. Some of you have faith. Some of you don't. Some of you have a religion and a posture religiously that you believe that's faith, and it's not the biblical understanding what Jesus talks about, about what faith is. Secondly, we wanted you to ask for more faith. We we're going to find in the scriptures that God is the one, the giver of faith. He apportions it as he wills. And some of us just need to long and ask God for more faith. We know that there's levels of faith. Not to be in competition, but Jesus will commend some for great faith. He will talk about small faith. And so we know that there are levels, and we, we would want you through this series to begin to evaluate your own faith and ask God for more of it. But thirdly, maybe more importantly is to respond to it. Whether it's small or large faith, you cannot find a person in the scriptures from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, you cannot find someone throughout history that has a genuine, authentic, surrendering faith to Jesus Christ that does not respond. When you come to Christ, there is a response, a living response in your life. And it is that that has driven us to talk about this because we can have misunderstandings of faith. Now, while we may talk about the things we know of faith, we said, what are the things that faith isn't? We first said it's not a feeling. There are many times that in the scriptures, the stories about faith where it didn't feel very good for many of them. 
but they had a faith. Many times in your journey with faith, I'm sure, if we were to evaluate your, your story, I'm sure those seasons where faith was tested, it didn't feel very good. Second, though, we said is that faith is not blind optimism. Uh, it so frustrates me to hear more of that, that Christianese speak when someone just throws it out and just, I'm just trusting God and I'm, just, I'm so faithful and I'm just going to just jump off. It assumes that it's an ignorant or a stupid or a very risk-taking faith when really faith isn't grounded in just blind optimism. Faith is not just believe that. Remember we said James, the half-brother of Jesus, it says that James is talking about faith and saying, you believe that God is one, that there's a God? He said, sarcastically, good for you. Demons also believe that. You're right on par with the demons, right? And they also fear God. It's suggesting that it's a belief in Jesus Christ. It's a belief in who God is that causes us to have a faith response. You can know a lot of things about God and do nothing about it. It's not a belief that. It's also not just morality. Often what gets confused in faith these days is that if we're just good moral people, that's faith. If I don't sleep around, if I, don't, if I follow all the Ten Commandments, that I have faith. Well, not really. Again, works in the moral scales of trying to balance out that keeping yourself a little bit better than right the rest of the evil world isn't really the description of faith. And last but not least, as we said, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Many of you know that passage. Great one is that we're not saved by works. Faith is not an accumulation of getting things right before God. Often we live this way. And so it's, it's for this reason that we have anchored our series around Hebrews. And for two weeks, if you haven't listened to those messages, just to get a backdrop, um, we used Hebrews chapter 11, but specifically verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for. Remember I talked about it's the, it's the little girl that was promised by her dad that he's going to build her a playhouse. And he, he's, he's not really aware of what he's promised, but this little girl starts bringing the dishes and, and all the playthings out to the yard because she says, my daddy is going to do it. It's a title deed, a confident title deed that I have this title deed that he will fulfill it. It says also, though, an assurance about what we do not see. And this is a paradox, isn't it? Because faith has this sense of an assurance and a confidence. And so what we hope for and it's almost like a spiritualized God gives us. And even though we may not physically be able to see it, we have a sense about its truth. We have a confidence, a spiritual foundation that we can see it in our souls, so to speak. And then we get to watch it unfold. C.S. Lewis says it a little bit differently. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. So I believe in Christianity as confident as the sun rises and doesn't know much about the sun but believes that it is and, and what its function is, but not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. When we have faith and we begin to livingly respond to it, we see our whole life through a different lens. When you have faith in Jesus Christ, everything is illuminated in a very different way. And so my whole life becomes a living response to the light that Jesus sheds on this world. Scripture talks about this. Paul will talk about shedding the scales from your eyes. We, we wear the shirts at baptism, 
right? We give them shirts that says, I am awake. It's this awakening that starts to unlock our faith. Friends, faith that sits dormant in seats and punches the card of religion is not faith at all. That's religion. I love when I get into conversations and people will say to me, they'll hear, they'll hear that I'm a pastor, right? And you go, well, I'm not religious. And I'll say, neither am I. And that throws a monkey wrench into their world, right? Because their story is I grew up, I did all these things, these classes, right? And, you know, I don't believe in any of that stuff. And, yeah, I said, I don't either. What do you believe? Oh, I, I believe in having a faith relationship with Jesus. And then it's the, the head turn. What? What is that? This is a lot about what we've been talking about, about faith. And so I, my prayer, our prayer is, gosh, that God would move us as a church. That we wouldn't sit around and play religion. No matter what the rest of the world is doing, that community we begin to respond to whatever measure of faith is God's given you. Now this morning, we're going to talk about living response. We're going to do four different uh, narratives where Jesus talks about faith. And this morning, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Just magically, people will pass out Bibles, I promise you. Um, raise your hand if you need a Bible this morning. Mark chapter 5. If you have the digital Bible on your phone, uh, you can. it's just Mark chapter 5. Uh, but hold up your hands high and somebody will pass out a Bible to you. Mark chapter 5. They're in our, they're in our Bibles that are called... Uh, they're, uh, Reading challenged, so if you're older, like myself, I can't read this Bible unless it's out here, then I got it. Uh, Mark chapter 5, go to that text. We're going to talk about that this morning. Keep your hand up high so they can see it and they'll, uh, they'll get those. Now, this morning, what I love about teaching about narratives to you, and I just long uh, to, to teach those, is because I get to give you cultural backdrop, context. What's going on? As we land in this story, it's, it's not good enough for us just to take a slice of Scripture and just read it because we read it then out of context. What's really happening? Well, uh, Jesus is going around the Sea of Galilee and then Jerusalem, but he's beginning to do miracles. And we're going to find in chapter 5, he is going to end up uh, uh, doing a, a couple miracles in that whole chapter. But pre this, let me kind of give you the, the setting of what's happening first. Mark chapter 4, he is going to calm the storm in Galilee. We got a chance to go to Israel. We've, we've been on the sea in Galilee one year, dead calm, beautiful sunset, romantic, awesome. And we're reading the story of the storm like, right, what kind of storms? They get little ripples, right? The next year we went, we, it was a storm so bad we had to get off of the Sea of Galilee. And so you get this picture, but imagine the miracle. Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, boom, the storm is calmed. Had to be an unbelievable moment. Jesus does this in chapter 4. Then in chapter 5, it moves us into is, I had spelled this wrong, so I just want you to know I, I'm spelling challenged. I love spell check in every program that we have. But it didn't change this because it's grammatically right. So it was exercising demons. So someone asked me, was Jesus really exercising with the demons? So anyway, a lot of people got a kick out of that. Exorcising demons. That means getting them out. And Jesus in chapter 5 is, is on the other side of Galilee. And he asks this man who's possessed, what is your name? Not the man, but the demon. He says, name yourself. And he says, legion. 
Now, I put this just so you get perspective. Normally, a, a person who led a legion in the Roman army would have been about 5,600 men. 5,600 demons. Remember the story? He exercise, exorcises them, right? And he puts them into the pigs, and the pigs run off of the cliff. Now, a friend of ours, John Reed, who texted me in the middle of service, he's really disturbed. I said he was from Arkansas. That's probably because he spent so much time in Arkansas, but he's from Virginia, tells a joke in our study. We do a study together. And so he said, this is the first time um, that we hear in the Bible of a suicide. <laughs> yeah, yeah, suicide. I just said, wow, that is a redneck joke for sure. Um, so thanks, John, for that one. But this had to be amazing. He's calmed the storm. Now he's done this. And these things have not been done. They're watching miracles unfold. So you can imagine in that culture, he begins to get an amazing following. Well, we go now into chapter 5 a little bit deeper, and he's going to be really met almost at the shore as he gets off by a man named Jarius. Jarius is a synagogue leader, which meant a couple things. First, he was, uh, probably had enough means he was probably on the higher level of culture about what, what he had as far as money and resources, but also prestige and power. He knew a lot of people. He was the synagogue leader. Synagogue, remember, was the center of worship uh, for most villages all throughout Israel. And so he had to be, and that was what they centered most of their life around, around that rabbi. Rabbi, being a rabbi or a synagogue leader, highest position in culture. I mean, this was prestigious. Jarius really lowers himself because most of the synagogue leaders were not following the rebel rabbi, Jesus. And so Jarius lowers himself and says, probably through a crowd of the marginalized, right? Because Jesus hang out, hung out with the sinners, the broken, the sick, all this group of people that I'm sure weren't the popular ones. Jarius goes and says, my daughter's dying. Can you come to my house and heal her? Now, I say that to you because what's going to unfold now, this story of this woman uh, that, that is bleeding shows up right in the middle of this Jarius story. It's an interruption. And I'm saying that because I, I think it's so telling of our faith. Uh, most where God's going to show up is probably going to be a divine interruption in your life. Let me say that again. Most of those points in your life where God's going to meet you is going to be a divine interruption. It's not going to be how you planned it. It's not going to be how you set it up. As much as we try to set up a service that's, that's, that's good and, and lines up topical and we feel like it, it, it flows from the gospel and all these things, we would tell you at the end of the day there's all these divine interruptions that show up. And that's Jesus. Jesus shows up in the middle of this story uh, with this woman. This, this is a story that just is really the key of the chapter. Because she is going to be commended for her faith, not Jarius. Now, it doesn't mean Jarius is a bad guy. In fact, what's going to happen is she is going to be healed. This woman we'll see in a minute. But then it's going to say someone's going to run to the crowd right after this woman's healed. Hey, listen, Jarius, your daughter died. Could you imagine I mean, we just watched, you're gonna, this is going to be this unfolding of this woman being healed, and then all of a sudden, the bummer news, she died. No more hurry. 
don't even come. And remember, Jesus is going to say, if you want to read this as homework, he's, she's going to say, or he's going to say to the crowd and to Jairus, believe, have faith, trust, have confidence. I'm paraphrasing. He, Jesus is going to, and Jesus continues to go. Now, there's a great part of that story because it's a 12-year-old daughter, and Jesus is going to call her daughter. She is 12 years old. This woman has had this ailment for 12 years. Very interesting parallels. And so I say that because this is right in the middle. It's an interruption. But what's going on with women in the culture today? I want to just highlight a couple things. First, they were barred from public speaking. Uh, They were not allowed to get out in public and to talk openly to a crowd. Uh, They could not do that. They were also, the law prohibited prohibited them from reading from the Torah out loud. Uh, It was not for women to do that. And so, you know, they kind of were segregated out. As it's going to say here, synagogue worship was segregated. Imagine that. Welcome the men in here. Women, you're going to be um, in 218 together. We're going to push you down there. I mean, that is separation and segregation on that. Women were never allowed to be heard. In fact, scriptures will talk about um, if they want to learn, tell them to go home and do that in silence and submission. I mean, so all these are... I'm trying to give you a context of what's really going on for women in this culture, pretty much alone. I mean, women felt, you know, disconnected probably from the greater picture here, and it was kind of a normal part of culture. Now, now I get into the sensitive subject. This woman was, was called bleeding for 12 years. So as a man, this is a very uncomfortable space to be talking about this, but... I have four daughters and a wife, and so we had to address what's called Aunt Flo, um, which is, you know, that blessing. Um, I have a friend in California, he told me, Troy, uh, I had, he had four daughters and a wife, he said every time that, you know, the alignment happened, can we just say it that way, right? The alignment happened, they would say, Dad, the flag is up, he would pack his fishing bag and go away for four days. My wife told me, you don't ever do that. Uh, so in our home, we just said, let's call it the blessing, um, and it stuck. So my daughters will come down, Dad, I'm, it's the blessing. So it's, it's kind of our key word, our code word, the blessing. You know, the blessing is unfolding. Uh, in Old Testament culture, uh, it was literally a red, it was called the red tent. It was a tent that women, when they were on their monthly ant flow or the blessing, would have to go into a tent together until they were done. Now, in Leviticus, I've spared you pretty much a large part of the chapter of a lot of graphic, and I don't want to have to keep repeating this, but verse 19, let's read this. Not together. You don't have to say it out loud. (laughs) Um, When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days. Anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. When you were unclean, you could not go to worship without a sacrifice, without the process of being made clean again. Now, I don't have time to go unpack all the things that you'd go into of when you were unclean. Now, the rest of the chapter implies just some specifics. Anything she lies on is unclean. If you touch that, you are unclean. Anything she sits on, 
Anybody who touches her bed, anyone who touches anything she sits on will be unclean until evening. Anything. If, for many days, past her monthly period, she will be unclean as long um, as the condition exists. That means, here we're going to find a woman that has gone well past this monthly blessing, and she's really permanently unclean. What does that mean religiously for this woman? It means she would have been unable to be a part of the worship. Let's look at some of her circumstances that would have happened to her. Uh, first, ritually un- unclean, where she was separated from the synagogue worship. Now, Trish and I have been talking back and forth, and it would be interesting to find out and research more, but what could she have done? Could she have been offering sacrifices? Maybe. I would bet the, the gossip and slander around the villages would have been, she must have done something wrong. I mean, isn't that typically, you remember Job, his wife, and even his, his friends said, curse God and die. You've sinned somewhere. You've done something. She's ritually unclean, and she's been separated from God. So, a few things. She was financially broke, probably trying to solve this. If she got pushed out of what was the social center of every village, she had to be using every resource possible to try to remedy this issue. And they did, they weren't, you know, surgery wasn't popular back then. It would have been herbs and all these different kind of medicines to try. She's broke. She's unable to be with people. Are you getting the picture here? Don't touch me. You're not clean. Most likely single, because her husband would have been unclean. They could have had no level of intimacy and probably did not have any children pre this, but it gives us the picture she couldn't bear children during this time. She's in physical pain. I mean, just the ailment. And this is 12 years. Let me give you a picture of 12 years. That was 2004, right? 2004 is roughly when we moved here. And imagine if we moved into town and we were unclean and not able to connect with anybody in Green Bay because we were religiously unclean. We, we couldn't connect with people. It didn't matter about even a job because jobs were very intertwined with your faith and your story, your religion story. So I couldn't go do a job because I'm unclean. I'm going to make them unclean. So it's, it wasn't this separation of church and state. We'd have been broke. I mean, in a matter of how long. And how long would it take any of us to feel alone, to feel embarrassed. 12 days, 12 weeks, 12 months. This woman has this for 12 years. I feel in the weight of what she's feeling. A word that really we're going to hone in on that, that a lot of us have struggled through in our lives, but it's, it's this word shame that she starts to feel. In Mark 5, the story starts this way, and so I've just mentioned to you kind of her condition, but it says, and this woman who was there had been subject for bleeding for 12 years, and she suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. It's not that she didn't try to solve this. She spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. I mean, so add that up and on it. It's not just a condition that's the same. Everything she tries gets worse and worse. 
She gets poorer. She feels more alone. She's feeling more embarrassed. Think of the isolation. This word shame, defined means a feeling of guilt, regret, or sadness that you have, you have because you know that you have done something wrong. You feel guilt, regret, or embarrassment. Embar- she's embarrassed over her condition. She is unclean, so religiously, she's not right to come to God. She's not allowed to come to God. She feels dishonor and disgrace. I have to say, in even doing this study, it didn't take me long, not to identify to her condition of that, but to identify to the life sentence that many of us give ourselves of shame. See, many of you in this room have given yourself the life sentence of shame because of guilt, because of something you've done, because of something you aren't. It's the story I remember. I read that read this week. It was just an illustration. It's of a story of a man and woman who pull into an old gas station, where there is an attendant, a gas station attendant. Remember those days? I do. Old enough to remember those. Young boy comes up and puts the gas into the into the car, but he starts to do what he did. Remember, he cleaned the front window and he's cleaning the front windshield, and he's just doing a great job. I'm so excited to you know to be a servant. And the man kind of grumbles because once he's done, he says, it's still dirty. Could you do it again? And so he does. Gladly, because he he wants to do a good job. Does it again, and the man is irritated, says, it's still dirty. Do this again, and do it right. This boy now, a little bit shaken, but okay, I'll get it right. And he's trying to find where where are the blemishes, where are the smears, right? Working so hard, he can't find them. He finishes again and waiting for that sense of, oh, you got it. And this man now yells and says, who are you? You don't deserve to do this job. Who hired you? You're an idiot. You're a fool. They were stupid to hire you for this. You don't deserve to do this job. And this man just just grills him. I can't believe you can't get this right. The boy clearly shaken as he takes the gas out and not sure what to think of himself and beginning to believe the comments. Obviously, I can't wash a windshield. I can't get this guilt. I can't get this clean. I, 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 I'm guilty. Just before this car leaves, the wife of this really impatient man leans over and takes his glasses off and cleans them off. And he puts them back on and realizes, I'm sorry, it's my glasses. I tell you that story because I wonder how many of us are hearing voices that it's not about you trying harder to get rid of guilt. That it's not about you trying harder to appease what the world says about you. It's for you to realize that Jesus is the one that comes and cleans the windshield. You can't. How many of us live in shame and guilt of what we can't get right? That's what I love about faith. Faith calls us to relationship that Jesus says that it's about accepting his sacrifice 
to clean the windshield. Not us. That we get to, like that little boy, sit and watch him service the windshield of our lives. No matter how dirty and broken. That we don't have to listen to the drivers of this world. We don't have to listen to the inner voice of shame of our own selves, which we do. Friends, I feel shame. It's, it's hard for me to battle, whether weekly or even in that chair before getting up here, where I don't feel, I'm not a good enough pastor. I'm not good enough. I've done stuff. I can't get the windshield clean enough. I, I feel. And I hear those voices. Well, how could you be a pastor? We all battle on some level. Hopefully I'm getting you into the skin to feel the empathy of what this woman is feeling. Because we still feel some of this today. This idea of being shamed and alone. And friends, many people today do not come to the cross of Christ because they'll say to me, I've heard it a dozen times, I'm not good enough. And I want to say you are exactly right. That's why you need the sacrifice and that's why once accepted, you live no longer in shame. But why for us that have faith can we accept the sacrifice of Christ and still feel shame? It's like letting Jesus clean the windshield and saying, ah, I don't think you got it clean enough, Jesus. I think of that story and think of sometimes, are we that driver sitting in the chair telling Jesus, I don't, I don't think you cleaned it enough. <laughs> you, you don't know how much this needs to get cleaned. Shamed and alone. This woman feels that separation from God, as we probably can resonate with this this morning. She, she feels this so, so heavily, 12 years. So we pick up the story here in verse 27. It says, when she hears about Jesus, and there's a comma, and, and there's this pause here, and I, there's so much that has to go on here, because it says, when she hears about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touches his cloak. I'm thinking, wait, wait. There had to be a huge story about her hearing about Jesus. I've heard about his miracles. And then hearing, hey, by the way, Jesus just hit the shore. He's walking into our village. Now the comma. Oh, man, should I go? Should I do this? Should I risk embarrassment? Should I risk going through a crowd if I, whoever I touch is going to be unclean, they're going to be mad at me. Could you imagine the email and the Twitter account and the, all the, the hate stuff she would have gotten? How dare you unclean? She probably was living isolated. Here she is, and she is in her mind battling. How many of you have been there before battling shame and guilt? As she probably felt, should I do this? I'm sure that interaction had to be a beautiful mess of her having faith that Jesus can, but should I? I'll bet that question comes often in this room. I bet he can, I have faith he can, but should I? Should I risk it? She had to leave her place of safety, leave her place of aloneness, and then re-engage. And it says that she went behind the crowd. She had to work through this crowd and probably touching tons of people and thinking, oh man, I hope they don't notice me. I pray they don't notice me. 
And then she had to touch Jesus' cloak. What does that mean? It's one thing to touch someone and make them unclean. It's another thing to touch a rabbi and make him unclean. Horrible. You just didn't do that. But what does it say about her belief in and faith in Jesus. She knew that he was different. She had at least some level of faith, some level of confidence, some level of trust. He won't reject me. He won't do that. Also notice she skips all of the religious processes of probably that she had to go through of steps and rushes behind the crowd just to touch his cloak. What does she touch on his cloak? Scripture says Jesus, like a rabbi, would have worn maybe some of the things that rabbis worn, and they would wear really a seamless, sewn from the neck all the way down in one, there are no hems. And on the bottom of it would have been the fringe, and there probably were tassels. Tassels were a symbol of power, an authority of a rabbi, and they had this symbol of power just to touch them. And she had faith that she didn't have to ask him anything. She didn't have to, she didn't have to get in front of him. She didn't have to go through a ritual. She just had to touch him. That's, that's huge faith. That's, that's faith in some ways, you think of just small things about Jesus. See, when you come to Christ, it's not about having it all figured out. But do you trust he can heal you? Do you trust that he can give you a direction for your life? Do you trust that he has eternity already figured out for you? Uh, whatever she had figured out, she knew if she just touched him, it says in verse 28, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Pretty simple, but so profound, so powerful. She had an intentional response. I, I just wanted to highlight this for a moment. The faith, I believe true faith, as Scripture calls it, demands an intentional response as opposed to an accidental one. You see, the crowd is around Jesus. And, and they're bumping into him and they're touching him, as we're going to find. But really, only one intentionally responds. And she had to make a decision to leave her home Risk embarrassment, risk being seen, risk whatever it was to take the initiation and respond. It wasn't going to be by accident because she could have done this. Well, I'll just go hang out. Whoa, almost touched somebody, you know. She could have just walked around the scene and floated around and trying to be inconspicuous and, and just not being noticed. But she decides, I'm going I'm to intentionally respond. I'm going to work myself through the back of this crowd and I'm going to touch the hem of our Savior. It says in verse 29, she, her, immediately her bleeding stopped. Whoa. I've only been a part of a couple experiences in my life where prayer and, and a response where God changed in that moment something. A, a couple times. That had to be so powerful for her. It says, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. We know physically that happened, but friends, so much of the scripture has a double meaning, and it's a spiritual reality, isn't it? Freed from their what? The suffering of embarrassment, of guilt, of shame, of dishonor. She was restored. 
She's made clean. It says, verse 30, at once Jesus realized that the power had gone from him. Isn't this interesting? Whoa, superpower gone. Who took, who took some? It says he turns around and asks the crowd, and this is even funnier. We're talking about the Son of God who doesn't need to be informed about what happened, right? I mean, out of all the things he can do, he knows who touches him. Who touched my clothes? Verse 31, you, here's his disciples. They're, they're always throwing in really this kind of smart aleck kind of answer. Uh, you see everybody around you, Jesus? I mean, you're really smart and you're doing a lot of cool things, but you're asking kind of a dumb question. There's a lot of people around you. And it says, and you're asking who touched me? Everybody's touching you. Everybody's touching you, and by accident and by just blind whatever, you know, I just get a little bit of Jesus, but only one is an intentional faith. Isn't that interesting? But Jesus kept looking around. No, I, I want this person. And friends, why does Jesus do that? He wants to know who touched him. It is not to publicly humiliate her. This is such a powerful thing, and Trisha and I were talking between services. It really is, I think, two things. One, I think Jesus is calling her to intentionally confess, publicly confess, her faith, a profession of her faith. Friends, faith does not lie in dormant and aloneness. It exposes who we are, and we're out there, and we're giving a testimony. But here's the second part of it. It's so that Jesus can give a personal response. Jesus is not going to publicly shame her. He's going to publicly affirm her in the midst of all of the village who called her unclean. I'm going to publicly make a personal touch. How promising and how powerful is that? It says, Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then this woman knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. She just, it's too much. He knows, he knows, he knows. All right, I'm going to his feet. Trembling with fear, she tells the whole story. Friends, you want to know another reason why God wants us to stand and claim faith in him? So that everyone else hears it too. He wants to give you a personal touch and response, but he wants the world to hear. He wanted that whole crowd to hear. He wanted that whole crowd to recognize her, not as unclean for 12 years, but now, as he's going to say, he said to her daughter, he renames her. This is a woman. This is daughter. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Your faith in what? That just touching my robe, that I wouldn't reject you, that I would rename you. You're named unclean by the world. You're named unclean by religion. You're named unclean by yourself. But I name you daughter. You're disconnected from the world and you're called disconnected and discouraged and dirty. But I call you daughter. Wow. She's freed from her suffering. This is an intentional response to faith. And yet it's a personal response by Jesus. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Do you have confidence this morning 
Do you have confidence in Jesus? Some of you don't know Jesus, and so you feel guilt, and you're feeling like, gosh, could I earn my way? And for you this morning, moving away from shame would be you standing up and claiming that Jesus is the only one that can clean that part of your life and make it whole. That you can stop working so hard to get it right. Because you can't answer the question, how good is good enough? You can't. But there are many of you with faith in this room. You've claimed the faith of Christ in your life and you yet still live unconfident that the sacrifice was enough. You live in shame. I struggle. I'm not good enough. Jesus' death and resurrection could not be enough to make Troy a pastor. Could not be enough to wash the windshield of my life. See, I think we live in this reality and we serve life sentences by our own choice in shame, in guilt. When Jesus says, I'm here to receive your intentional response, this living response to faith in me, and I'm going to make a personal response to you. A brother and sister were out in their backyard and they had these pet geese and they were throwing rocks kind of a distance away from him, but the boy messed up and actually hit one of the geese and killed it, and he was horrified. felt so guilty and so ran off and buried it to try to hide it from his father, and his sister, obviously knowing this whole thing, said, I won't tell dad unless, I'll, I'll tell dad unless you do dishes for me every day. So day after day, she would look at him and say, you're guilty. Do the dishes or I'll, t- I'll tell on you. So day after day, week after week, this boy enslaved to his own guilt of what he had done couldn't, did not have freedom. Could not be authentically coming to his father and felt such a fear of what might happen. And so years go by as this sister has a grip hold on his life and really a, an act of reminding a voice of guilt and shame. And so one day... She says, it's, you haven't done the dishes. He says, I know. She says, I'm going to go tell dad. She goes, he goes, that's okay. I told him. And he forgave me. And I'm free. I feel like so many of us have to be reminded that the God of heaven sent a sacrifice so that you can have confidence. And if you believe in that sacrifice with faith, He takes the guilt and shame. Friends, religion is going to guilt you to death. But faith in Jesus Christ removes the guilt and shame that you might be called a son or a daughter of the king. This morning, Bobby and and Molly are going to sing a song about courage about courage this morning, and, and I want you to be encouraged by that. I, I, I want you to feel a sense of that, but I want to call you to response, an intentional one this morning. One that's going to have you wrestle with, like, the comma after this bleeding woman where it's, she has to wrestle with, should I do this or not? Because remember I said faith calls for us 
to an intentional response, and often it's public. But I know many of you this morning are living in shame, and you want freedom. And I want you to know I stand this morning standing. I do. I hear voices of not being good enough, and how could you do this? If you this morning want freedom from shame, I want to pray with you. I just want a small prayer of freedom from shame, whether you know God or not, but you want to find freedom from the shame that you feel. You're not good enough. Would you just stand? You just stand this morning? Yeah. Do you feel guilt and shame? And I know some of you this morning are struggling because the, it's, a, it's a tension that I'm asking you to stand, right? Because of shame, and it's a shameful act to stand. I'm standing. And I want to say to some of you to begin to stand, you don't have to live like this anymore. You don't have to live convinced that the voices in the car screaming at you, telling you're not good enough, are not true. Stand this morning. If you want to be freed from guilt, if you know God this morning, and you're living with a sense of you're not enough, would you stand? Because I want to publicly pray together that we're freed. Our church is freed. You don't have to live in shame and guilt anymore. Some of you have things in your past that you can't shake. You hear a voice going, oh my gosh, if, if anybody knew. Remember when Sean, a few weeks ago, when we interviewed Sean and Lita, remember what he said? Jesus, you did so many miracles. God, you've done so many miracles. Part the season, you walked on water. But I bet you can't do this. Fix this. That's you this morning. Stand. Because you don't have to live in shame. And some of you have given yourself life sentences on shame. And it's stopping this beautiful interaction that can unfold with God. Who else is paralyzed by shame this morning? Even the tension of just having you stand and you're feeling it. Jesus wants a personal response. And remember, faith lives itself out in a living response. Those of you standing, would you just extend your hands open like this? And I'm going to ask people around you to just come around you. If just there are people around that are with those people, just stand around them. Put a hand on them, would you? And, and just get around them because, friends, if we were to be honest this morning, who hasn't lived with a level of guilt and shame? Hold your hands out this way. And you pray a prayer to yourselves. Pray this. Father in heaven, give me courage to respond to my faith. And God, may you touch me this morning and free me from my guilt, my shame. God, will you free me from that suffering in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're free. As you sit this morning, I want to just encourage you, as you hold your hands open like this, I think it's important that we, we respond to the cross. But often we need something to remind us, and song is this beautiful part of us having a way to anchor in what it means to have faith. And a beautiful song that 
was found this week is around the courage to believe. I don't want you to go to communion yet. Let Bobby dismiss you to communion, but just let these words sink in. That God wants us to be, have the courage to believe that what he did can remove and free us permanently. So Father, will you do that with this song and these words in your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.